Joshua chapter 1. This is, this is a beautiful room, man. I, I'm so excited about all the things the Lord's doing over here at this church. Been a blessing to me to watch it from a distance. Quite a distance, but I've been really eager to get over here and see this. You know, Robert sent me pictures, but you can't really appreciate the, the beauty, the practicality of this this beautiful room till you come. So let's talk about fear. That may seem like a strange subject, and, and, and our response to fear, which ought to be faith. And there are a couple of different examples tonight that we should look at. I, mean, I, I said last night briefly that I've, um, I'm very much aware that our nation now, among the preachers of America, there's a new etiquette, a new etiquette that is, that is truly cowardly, but it hides behind the claim that, um, that they really just want to win people. And while claiming their desire to win the masses, the, the average pastor in America right now is actually losing the cause while trying to, in the name of trying to win the masses and not offend anybody. There are so few pastors that will actually dare to have the courage to say what God says on whatever the subject may be. I'm, I'm impressed with somebody like your pastor, Rob McCoy, who will not only say what the Lord tells him to say and what the world doesn't want him to say, but even going a step beyond that, Rob McCoy will go where they don't want him to go. So that's all the more impressive to me. It's commendable. But that doesn't mean it isn't scary. There's a philosophy that some people teach with regard to faith, that somehow or another faith and fear are maybe like they're opposites or one cancels out the other. I don't think that is the case, frankly. There's two different kinds of courage, and I think that it's exemplified by two characters, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb is what I would call crazy brave. Caleb is just nuts. There's no place in the Bible where there is any mention of God having to tell Caleb what he tells Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. He will repeat, did not I command you? Did not I command you to be strong and be of good courage? There's no place where God ever does such with Caleb. It's apparently not necessary. In the only quotes we have from Caleb, he is just... Nuts with faith, even as an old man, when he finally comes to the land of promise, 40 years later than his first visit to the land of promise. Do these names ring a bell? Tell me if these names ring a bell. Shamua, Shephat, Igal, Oshea, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sithur, Nabi, Guel. Do you, do you guys have any of your children named <laughs> Shamua Shephat, Egel Oshea Paltiget? You know why? Because these are the losers. These are the ten spies that nobody names their kids after. 
Nobody. I bet you got a Joshua or a Caleb in your, in your family tree somewhere. Because those are worthy names. Joshua and Caleb. But the two, they're not exactly the same. Caleb is the primary spokesman on that occasion when the other 10 give their negative report. It appears that Joshua is with in full agreement with Caleb, but Caleb's crazy. Caleb's got crazy faith. Caleb's like, they're, yeah, there's giants, but they're bread for us. I mean bread, like he can make a sandwich. Bread. And, um... Joshua, though, Joshua is different. And it's apparent to me that Joshua is different because when you look at Joshua chapter 1, in verse 1, it is written, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. This is God saying to Joshua, there shall not any man be able to stand Before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand nor to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Well, that's quite a command from the Lord. Get up and go. This is God going, okay, Moses is dead. Now you get up and you go, and I'm with you. I am so with you that nobody, there will never be, think about this, there was never even going to be a close contest. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Can you imagine receiving a promise like that from the Lord, from God himself? The the God of wonders would say, I am with you. It's, It's the statement here. There shall not be any man able to stand before thee all the days of thy life as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. And then the command be strong. Take note, you guys, that strength isn't something that you have. It's something you're supposed to be. God didn't say have strength. God said be strong. And of good courage. He says it again. Verse 7, only be thou strong and be very courageous. Be thou strong. God repeats it. Now let me ask you the question, why does God have to repeat that to Joshua? Why does God have to say it at all? Because Joshua is afraid. Or he's tempted to be afraid. Joshua has to deal with certain realities 
And he's trying, no doubt, and you can relate to this if you're a human, he's trying to be what God has called him to be. He's trying to hear what God says, but he has choices to make. Because it is a scary proposition. Everything that he can see would cause him to be afraid. Everything that he cannot see would cause him to be brave. So God commands him. Look at this, verse 8. Can't pass by verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. That is, that is, you will never cease from speaking this book of the law. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou, make thy, thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So God tells Joshua, you have got to continually be speaking my word and then meditating on it. He, he connects those two things together. God with Joshua connects speaking and meditating. He connects them together. You've got to speak it. You've got to think it. You have got to do it, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. It's not enough just to think about it. You've got to actually apply it. But he says to him, if you'll do this, then you'll make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Now, what does he say in verse 9? Have not I commanded thee, be strong and have a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee with us wherever thou goest. It's a command. Be not afraid. Be not dismayed. And, and the reason, once again, is because I'm with you. The Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. So, I would like to just point out to you that this, what we have just read, is God addressing Joshua's temptation to fear and the kindness of the Lord as such. He doesn't merely command him, although he does command him, but he also gives him reasons. God gives Joshua reasons to have courage, to be strong. He tells him, I'm with you. God is like, what more do you need? I am with you. I'll be with you wherever you go. And so it is now, so it is for us today, the two things they do actually sort of confront each other. And faith is, in the same way courage, is not the absence of fear, Courage is the choice to not obey fear, to not act on fear, but instead to factor in what God has said and to choose to trust. Faith and fear often in our lives, I know in my life, 
The two are found in the same space. In, in, in the same, fighting for dominance in my own heart. There are many things that the Lord calls us to do that are just plain scary, that are scary. And there are legitimate risks. As a matter of fact, what, this old, uh, that's the, um, the quote that is attributed to Hudson Taylor, great missionary to Asia. Hudson Taylor's quote is, unless there's an element of risk in our exploits for God, well, then there's no need for faith. Unless there's an element of risk, unless there's some danger, there's no need for faith. So there must be risk, there must be danger, and therefore there is need for faith. And where does faith come from? You guys know the New Testament, right? The Apostle Paul, Romans ten nineteen. faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. I believe this is the reason why God himself connects the law and meditation on it and continually speaking his word with Joshua. Continually speaking God's word. I think God, our Father in heaven, demonstrates his kindness by emboldening the weak and the fearful and choosing to use them. There's another example of somebody who was afraid and the Lord addresses his fear. It was the prophet Elijah. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. Sure, everybody knows about Elijah's big showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. But that big victory, that highlight of his life and ministry was followed by a low point. It was followed by a a great overwhelming fear. A certain, you might say, a degree of failure in Elijah's courage. Elijah has the courage to have the big showdown. God grants him great victory. He demonstrates great faith. And on the other side of that great faith he demonstrates, he runs from Jezebel. First Kings chapter 19, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And with all how he had slain all the prophets with a sword. And Jezebel sent a message unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them, by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and went for his life. Came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah. Left his servant there. But he himself on a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. He said, it's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, arise and eat. And he looked... And behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. 
And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink. And went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Okay, let's, let's talk about the, the, um, the tone of God. I don't know how many preachers you've heard deal with this particular story, but I get the impression from a lot of preachers I've heard that God was, you know, listen to the tone that they, they represent God with, and you'd get the impression that God was really bugged with Elijah. What are you doing here, boy? What are you doing here? But the, the text is just, what doest thou? Here it's a legitimate question, and I love the fact that God has always, all the way from the beginning, all the way from Eden, from Eden where he goes, Adam, where are you? God who knows everything, who is omniscient, asked questions. He asks questions <clears throat> for the benefit of us to think those things through. What are you doing here? What doest thou here, Elijah? And where is the here? He's at the Mount of God. He's there at the Mount of God. He's there at Horeb. Well, it's a good place. But what are you doing here? Verse 10, Elijah's response. He said, I have been very, very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. <coughs> for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to, to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Literally translated, that is a, a delicate whispering as of the breeze among the leaves. That's the literal translation of a still small voice well you can relate to some of that can you not you you have been in the presence of the big wind and the big fire you know something about earthquakes you understand the magnitude of those big things you've seen it's really quite humbling these massive forces of nature but none of those were God speaking. And when God does speak, it is in contrast to, to those things. Instead, it, it's a gentle whisper. Just a, a gentle whisper. What are you doing here? A gentle whisper. Verse 13, and it was so that when Elijah heard that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood and in the entering in of the cave, and behold, there came a voice unto him and said, what, what doest thou here, Elijah? And it's a still, small voice. It's a whisper like this gentle rustling of the leaves. 
by a breeze. What are you doing here, Elijah? You see, that is very gentle. He answers the question as he did previously. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. Now even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. That is Elijah explaining to God that it's a losing cause as he sees it. Everyone's turned He sees it as though his ministry has had no effect. No one's listening. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me now. And so he's requested of God that he should die. Hmm. It's here in verse 15 that far too many of my preaching brothers I think miss the Lord's heart. Verse 15, the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room, and it shall come to pass. That him that escape of the sword, and this is a still small, this is a gentle whisper, it shall come to pass. That him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. Him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. This answer from the Lord to Elijah. Telling him, giving him specific orders as the prophet to anoint the king, anoint the priest, and anoint the prophet. And that he's going to use them. It's all done with a gentle whisper. God, who commands courage, responds to fear and discouragement with a gentle whisper. And in that gentle whisper, I, there are, I, honestly, I hear a lot of preachers, they, they almost represent this like God is going, you think you're the only one, you think you're it, God got, like I need you, I've got 7,000 others. I don't know, sometimes the way preachers represent what the Lord says, I think they misrepresent what God was actually doing was encouraging the heart of the discouraged. Now think about it for just a second. Put yourself in Elijah's place. How would your heart respond to the news that there's 7,000 other of you? You think you're the only one. It's such a losing cause. There are 7,000 others? That is not God rubbing something in, in the prophet's face. That is God giving his heart a reason for courage. That's good news. That's not a losing cause, Elijah. And you're not alone. You feel alone. You looks like you're alone, but you're not. Let me tell you what you don't know. Let me tell you what you, let me give you the, inf- the intel that you don't have. Can you imagine what that did to the heart of Elijah? 
how, how incredibly refreshed to even just be informed of what he did not previously know. I'm not the only one. There's a movement. There's a remnant. Do you see my point that God, who actually commands courage, also still in kindness responds to the discouraged, to encourage. Go to Luke chapter 1, Christmas story. Consider the contrast for just a minute between two parties that the angel Gabriel has to deliver messages to. Luke chapter 1. Let's begin with verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abiah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now well stricken in years. You can relate to the term, can't you, if you've collected any years at all? You know what it means to be well stricken? <laughs> I know time does, in fact, strike. I have been struck. I'm not sure I'm in the category yet of well-stricken, but I've definitely been struck. I'm amazed at the strength that time will take away from you. These two are both not just, they haven't just been struck, they've been well-stricken. When I hear well-stricken, I'm thinking more like a, an old station wagon that's been in a demolition derby. It's just well-stricken. Not a little dent here and a little dent there. Can you guys, any of you, relate to well-stricken? They were well-stricken in years. It came to pass, verse 8 says, that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. The whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense when Zechariah saw him he was troubled and fear fell upon him you, you can understand that can't you I, even if you've never seen an angel well let's just take note that Luke does not offer for us any description of the angel. We do have a description that Ezekiel attempts. There's a description that Daniel, they, they, but still, it's, it's the man. They, they just kind of refer to him as a man. But I do observe that um, the angel was no flying toddler with a diaper, the the, the silly little angels that appear in the, the um, artist conceptions or the, the golden-haired 
you know, the, uh, lady angel that looks like the good fairy of the north. The, these are not biblical concepts at all. Angels, God's ministers, are fearsome. They are they're truly awesome. Mighty. It's Zechariah's reaction. Fear fell upon him when he saw this, this angel, the angel who appeared to him to deliver him a message. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah. So he, it's good. He's got his name. Fear not, Zechariah. Fear not. It's almost the first thing every angel's got to say whenever he has an opportunity, whenever he's got to speak to a mere mortal. First thing is, calm, calm down, calm down. Don't be afraid. Fear not, Zechariah. For thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. This is about as good news as a person has ever been given by a heavenly messenger. Look at all these happy words, joy, gladness, rejoice, all of that. For ye shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Shall drink neither Wine nor strong drink, he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he, re- he turn to the Lord their God. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. The spirit and power of Elijah. Interesting expression, isn't it? After looking back at that moment of Elijah's weakness and fear. That wasn't the defining moment of his life. God is quite gracious. He speaks of the spirit and the power of Elijah. He shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient into the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said unto the angel, <laughs> Whereby shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife well stricken in years. He's got an interesting perspective. He sees himself as an old man, but she's well stricken. <laughs> the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke said they were both well stricken. I'm an old man and my wife is well stricken in years. I'd like to point out to you, ladies and gentlemen, that Zechariah's response was profoundly stupid. It was unbelief. How do we know that? Because the angel tells us in verse 19, the angel, I always picture that angel going, so what do you think? I mean, he's got a happy face. How could he not? He delivers this news and goes, ta-da! And and you'd think that the old guy would just start dancing. Just instead, the old guy looks at him, what? How do you, what are you talking about? What? The angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel. That stand in the presence of God, and I am sent to speak unto thee, to show thee these glad tidings. I was sent from the very presence of God. To deliver this good news to you. 
Behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. The end. I'm out of here. The angel. <laughs> the angel. He goes, okay, so you, so you, you want a sign. That's what it is. You want a sign. How can you know? I've got a sign for you. You just forfeited the gift of speech for nine months. Does that work for you? How about this? You don't get to talk again. That's it. I'm seeing this. I want this. And this is what's going to happen until these things are fulfilled. I, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that still, Zechariah, though struck dumb, was smiling his old goofy head off as he came out, even happy about the fact that he can't talk. For the news that it is that it, that, that, that dumbness is connected to. It's not like he just he just comes out crying his head off and can't believe God just struck him dumb. No, he actually I'm sure if he was writing it out, he would have wrote to Elizabeth um, I asked for this. I asked for a sign, and this is it. And for the nine months, she gets the last word on every single disagreement. In fact, can you imagine, have you ever thought about having to, as a man, have you ever thought about having to go and explain to your wife why you can't talk? I, I said something stupid to the angel. And for nine months, she's going to look at you and go, <laughs> For for nine months, every time she's frustrated because she doesn't know what you want, she's got to say, but you had to open your mouth, didn't you? Nine months of that. He was reproved for his unbelief. He was reproved by the angel for his unbelief. But that's the Lord and his discipline. Still, his prayer was answered. His son, the son of promise, came. Contrast it, though, with verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came into her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. And cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Though the difference between Mary, she's not afraid at his presence. She is actually more focused on what he just said. Focused on his saying, troubled by his saying. She, she wondered, do you, you, you have the right address? Sure, you're delivering this to the right person. Hail, thou that are highly favored, blessed among women. The focus of her troubled mind was those words. Verse 29 says, and when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, Cast in her mind what manner of the citation there should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary. 
For thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. The throne of his father David. You understand, you're going to give birth to the king. The angel could not have invoked any other higher name, any other higher human name, than the name of Israel's great king. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. This is going to be a different heir to David's throne. This is one who will never, ever leave the throne. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? She, like Zechariah, responds with a question. Only her question wasn't an expression of unbelief, as was the case with Zechariah. Instead, it was just a question asking for clarification, and that was, how? How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered, said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Behold thy cousin Elizabeth. She hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Mary said, be it unto me according to thy word. Mary's response was a response of faith. Lastly, turn to Luke chapter 7. Since we spoke about Elijah and Elijah's visit with fear, Elijah's season of weakness. Just as the angel had said to Zechariah, John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But also, like Elijah, John the Baptist also experiences Elijah-like discouragement. Elijah-like fear. And a need to be encouraged. It is in Luke chapter 7, whether verse 18, Luke 7, 18, of the disciples of John, they showed him all these things. John called unto him two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus, saying, Aren't thou he that should come? Or look we for another. Art thou he who should come? This is John the Baptist who testifies for us in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. <laughs> he bore witness. <clears throat> he actually said, I bear witness. I saw the Spirit descend like a dove and rest upon him. And the one that sent me to baptize told me, you will know him because you'll see the Spirit descend and rest upon him. John even said, I would not have known him. Now, it doesn't matter that they're cousins. John said, I wouldn't have known him. 
except that the one who sent me to baptize told me what to look for. John said plainly, I testify that this is the one. Now the John who saw that, the John who testified that he is the one, now sends two disciples asking, are you the one? What happened to John? I think in much the same way it happened to Elijah. It looked like a losing cause. It looked altogether different than he expected. His expectation was not realized, at least his hopes, what Messiah would look like and what Messiah would do. Man, he gave him a massive introduction. And he spoke, just as God told him to speak, of this coming one, the sandal of whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie, whose axe is in his hand, the winnowing fork is in his hand, the threshing, the separating is coming. The axe is already laid into the, the root of the trees. Every tree that bringeth forth, not forth good fruit is, is hewn down and cast into the fire. So John rightly said this Messiah was going to come and divide, confront and divide. But this miracle-working, healing, kindness didn't fit into John's expectation. He's discouraged. He is afraid. Maybe if you're a Christian in the state of California, you can relate. Maybe you can relate to it looking like a losing cause. Maybe you had hopes especially this last election cycle. There were godly people. There were good godly people. There were candidates that, that had as answers. They had wisdom. There were, there were things to ignite a hope. But what happened? That's a question we'll be trying to figure out for a while, right? Some dirty dealings. And some cheating. What the Scots would call some skullduggery. But is any of that bigger than God? But you can perhaps you can relate to the low points of Elijah and the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. You can relate to them. Are you really the one or should we look for another? Verse 20 says, And when they were coming unto him, they they said, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? In that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And, and to many that were blind, he gave sight. Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, tell John that he's fired. Nope, you know better than that. That is not what the text says. Go tell John what things you've seen and heard. What things? How did the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised? 
to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. The Lord answered. The Lord responded. The Lord didn't go, are you kidding me? Are you serious? John sent you to ask that of me? How dare he? That's not how the Lord is. That's not how the Son of God is. Instead, he responds. He responds to the need of the person who is afraid. He responds to the need of the man who is discouraged. What does he tell him? What does he tell the messengers to tell him? Go tell him. The prophecy is being fulfilled. These are the things that Messiah would do. Go tell him. And tell him. The happy man is the one who is not offended in me. The happy man is the one who is not crushed when God does not fulfill his expectation. When he thinks he should. The happy man is the one who is not offended. Look at this, verse 24. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. And I think this is the, oh, the kindness of our Lord. He does this so that they, John's messengers, can hear him address the multitude and talk about John. Oh, it's not just, go tell John what you've seen and tell him, blessed is he who's not offended in me. He puts this sweet icing on the cake that he sends back for those men to deliver. When he shouted to the people concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? And that's interesting, they're down by the Jordan River and the reeds are everywhere, all around by the water. And these weed, these, these big reeds will tell you which way the wind is blowing for how they lie. They bend. They bow. The Lord asked a question. Would you go out to the wilderness to see a reed? One of those politician types that check to see which way the wind is blowing before they... What are the trends before they make a, a statement or answer a question or take a stand? Even just saying it, I guarantee you when the Lord said, did you go out to see a reed shaking in the wind? The whole crowd laughed out loud. Yep, they did the LOL. Whole multitude were, oh, good one. John, yeah, reed shaking in the wind. <laughs> yeah. Do, can you picture these messengers, these two disciples of John, hearing all of that, taking that in, saying, yeah, John, you should have heard how the crowd laughed when he said that. John going, he said that? Reed shaking in the wind? Yeah, (laughs) the crowd laughed, because everybody knows that's not you, John. Verse 25, but what wind you have for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? And another laugh. Did you go out to see a stylish guy? In his silk shorts? Not John. John was a man who lived his life in action wear. 
desert wear, anyway, right? The harshest, coarsest fabric made of camel hair woven. Coarse and itchy. No silk on John's skin. John, John was a man who had calluses on his hiney. He, he's, not, he's not a guy tiptoeing around in his silk suit. No, where do you find those guys? Well, you find them in Capitol buildings. You find them in the great halls. Where do you find them? What would you go out to see? A man dressed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. They're the government guys. You find them in king's courts. And where was John at that moment? In the king's dungeon, not his court. But what went you out to see a prophet? Yea, I send you and much more than a prophet. John is way more than a prophet because he's a prophet who was himself prophesied of. He's a prophet who was a fulfillment of prophecy. You got to see a prophet way, yeah, way more than a prophet. This I say, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee, for I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him, publicans, even them, they justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. John the Baptist, just like Elijah, found himself discouraged, perhaps somewhat afraid, and asking. And the Lord responded with such kindness, didn't he? The Lord responded, and he gave him reasons to believe. He addressed his fear, his discouragement with his word, as he always does. The Apostle Paul had to deal with fear. He acknowledges it, as he does in the, in the whole armor of God section of Ephesians chapter 6. Paul talks in militant terms to the believers. Tells them to suit up. Suit up, get your armor on, take your only weapon, which happens to be the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And what do you do after you've suited up and you have the Word? Did he say, take that and, and go out and preach it? No, actually, Paul said, take that and go pray it. Take it and pray it. Pray in the Spirit. Pray with all kinds of prayers and supplications. And then he goes, and pray for me. I'm paraphrasing. Pray for me, he said. Why are you at it? That I will speak boldly like I ought to. That's a little acknowledgement from a man who is a ball of scar tissue. That's a little bit scary. And he, he asks for prayer, for courage. For boldness. Brothers and sisters gathered tonight in conclusion, I just want to remind you. It may look like it's an impossible situation. It may look like it's a losing fight, but it's not. It never is. 
with God, all things are possible. Just as Gabriel said to, to Mary in that Christmas announcement. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Nothing's impossible. You know what? Even a revival, another revival. And a great awakening in the state of California could still happen. In fact, God likes things to get worse before he makes them better, before he even steps in. You know, and that's Elijah too on his, uh, on his good day. On his good day on Mount Carmel, he's going, this is too easy for God. This is too easy. Let's make it harder. What do we want? Water. How much? More. Let's soak it all down. Let's, let's, not, let's, let's not help God out. Let's do the exact opposite. Let's, let's show just how awesome he is. Let's make it worse. <laughs> make it harder. God is at work in each one of our lives individually. We all have our fears. There are things that we have um, to fight inside, in our own heart, each of us. Let God's word answer all of those fears. Meditate on it. Keep speaking it. Keep saying it. Know it, think it, speak it, and do it, as Joshua 1.8 calls us. Do that. Let the Lord respond to your fear. You can be real honest with God. It's a cool thing. You can be real honest. In fact, might as well be since he knows everything you're thinking anyway. Can't hide it from him. Just let the Lord speak. You know what? I have no idea if tonight you guys, you faithful Christians who show up for church middle of the week, have any need for encouragement right now. But put it in a file. Perhaps you'll need it tomorrow or next week. Or maybe you know somebody else who who could use that. Just remind them of how the Lord is and how in his word he addresses fears and discouragement with his word to encourage, to embolden, and to strengthen. Primary thing he usually says is, I'm with you. I am with you. Last Sunday, there's a policewoman in our fellowship, a young lady who's risen through the ranks of a local department, and um, recently they had an officer-involved shooting, and a man was killed. One of those cases where it needed to be done. She was the supervisor. It was one of her officers that did it. And the, the, the week had been hard. All of the questions, all of the, the um, explanations, all of the, everything surrounding it. It was incredibly taxing. She came to me last Sunday and said, one thing I don't understand, one thing I just don't understand, it doesn't make sense to me. I said, what is it? Laurie said, it was for the first time ever in a crisis I had no consciousness at all of God's presence. I couldn't, I couldn't feel him. I, I didn't have any sense that he was telling me anything. It's like, he, it's like he was gone. And she asked, what, in the, what? I've always had a sense of his presence. And she's going, what happened? 
And I said to her something that I believe is true with my whole heart, and perhaps you've experienced it yourself and you didn't know what it was. I said to her, dear friend, there's no higher compliment given by our father to one of his children than for him to stand them up and say, you got this. You stand now on what you know I've said. You got this. I'm with you. You don't have to feel it. You don't have to have a sense because I've said it. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Hit her. <laughs> and I, you know, one of those deals where, oh, okay, now she's crying. What I do? But it was, uh, uh, it's good crying. And she was going, one of those, there's no higher compliment from your father. Then for him to um, not rock you and coddle you, but stand you and say, you got this, now stand. You got this, pick it up. I'm with you. He does that. He does that a lot. People always feel something are being treated like babies. Always being coddled and tickled. But when you're big and strength has been developed, your father will stand you and tell you to stand or tell you to walk and just trust. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight and everybody who's not here with us tonight who may hear this message. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the words of the Scripture and apply them to the troubled heart, troubled mind. Pray, Father, that you would embolden and that you would encourage. And pray that you would strengthen and refresh and remind your children who you are. And just as you said to Joshua, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. So you have said to every single one of your children, for you are no respecter of persons. And that statement you have made to every single heart of every one of your kids. You will never leave, never forsake. And it doesn't matter if it feels like you have. Our feelings lie, but you speak the truth always. Help us to rest in it, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to find encouragement in your word and meditating upon your word. In the holy name of Christ our King.